Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for all episodes, you can go to theconsumervc.com. Our guest today is Rick Heitzman, founder and partner of FirstMark Capital, and focuses on consumer and enterprise investments in media, advertising technology, gaming, mobile, and data services. Rick has led investments in market leaders such as StubHub, which was acquired by eBay, Riot Games, which was acquired by Tencent, Pinterest, Airbnb, and many, many more. It's really quite remarkable. Rick has been recognized by CB Insights and New York Times as one of the top 100 venture capitalists globally. He serves on the board of directors as well of the New York Venture Capital Association. I am so excited to share this episode and my conversation that I had with Rick. So without further ado, here's Rick. So Rick, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Rick, what attracted you to work in venture capital and, er, and early stage investing in high tech? Yeah. So I, I started off my career as an investment banker. And in the 90s, as I was there and I was working in distressed buyouts and investment banking, kind of the internet arrived on the scene. And in my mind, it kind of changed everything. And it was completely new and exciting. And you saw all these paths of growth and you saw you know, value being created and businesses being disrupted, and it was clearly the new thing, and I wanted to be involved. And that was, it was a great path in, and I've been a venture capitalist, I've been an entrepreneur, and everything around it's been fantastic. That's awesome, that's awesome. And, and of course, you've had quite a lot of wins along the way, congratulations to that. I'm sure that you've heard thousands upon thousands of pitches and in the early stage, when there's really not that much data to go on, what are some qualities in a founder that you look for? In a founder, I, I like someone who has deep domain knowledge. So someone who has really thought about the problem and why what they're doing, although seeming crazy to most people, makes a tremendous amount of sense to them and to me. And so what makes investing in consumer startups uh, difficult or uh, I would I would presume in some ways more difficult than enterprise. Or what are some of the differences? I think that there's a, a big difference between consumer and enterprise, especially at the earliest stages. That enterprise, especially SaaS applications and first mark, <clears throat> we've done a lot of them and a lot of big companies, and they tend to be more tactical, and there tends to be more of a playbook of customer acquisition, product development, and the way that they mature through the market. Whereas, consu whereas consumer companies you know, tend to have a lower success rate, but they also tend to be bigger successes. And if you think about networked business models and consumers building on each other, that can happen very quickly. So if you think about it you know, from a gaming perspective and things like Riot Games, where there was a social and viral effect, which just made the whole company blow up and become a very big company very quickly. And even the network effects you would see at marketplaces like StubHub and Airbnb have shown that, you know, although the original idea may, it may be seeming crazy, if it works, it could be a very, very large company. That makes a lot of sense. So apart from your incredible track record, what, what do you believe, first and foremost, is... First Mark Capital's competitive advantage compared to other investment firms. 
So I think there's probably three things. I think most uh, relationships between VC funds and companies actually start with the relationship with the partner and the founder. And, you know, can you, do you have a founder who you believe sees the world or at least their part of the world in a very similar way to you? And do they share the same ethos of the grit, determination, and vision it takes to get from here to there? And I think that's, that's something that, you know, you can't, it's a really a more of a fit thing than why someone's better than anyone else. The second piece would be, you know, how do you leverage successes you've had in the past to help a company look around the corner? So if you think about areas like marketplaces, and we've invested in Upwork and Pinterest and Airbnb and StubHub. You know, what have we learned about scaling multi-billion dollar businesses in that sector where, which may be obvious or non-obvious to the entrepreneur, but also be able to help them and save them time and speed them to market. I also think that, you know, as we think about, you know, what is success and bringing a successful venture capital uh, partner and firm into a company, you know, a lot of these companies when they're starting out have no credibility. So, you know, they haven't really done much yet. And, you know, our secret, or I, I guess what we think is special about us, especially in the New York area, is the credibility we could lend, the relationships we could build to make that company seem like a much bigger player. And that helps a lot in attracting capital, attracting, attracting top talent, and being able to do sales or business uh, development relationships that a company of their size would have no right doing. I would probably also say the third thing that makes us you know, highly competitive in the market and we rarely ever lose a deal we want to do would be we have a platform team and we were early in investing in our platform and our platform has really been able to kind of make us bionic and you know everybody has the opportunity to have a partner in the room have someone join the board and you know there's there's more than one firm that has a, a tremendous amount of success and you know we often compete against the best firms that have great track records also but you know not only do you have a partner in the room but you have a whole infrastructure that can help founders scale the business so we focus on business development and corporate relationships uh, talent and we think that you know besides financial capital which is necessary the most important attribute we could bring is human capital and being able to bring that to bear as well as being able to build a community and a network for our entrepreneurs for both support as well as knowledge do you mind describing in, in in maybe a little bit of detail the actual first mark platform i saw that you guys put over on i think over like 100 events on each year which is just amazing can you talk to me a little bit about the types of events you guys put on sure so we have uh we have a range of events so over 100 events are kind of all sizes and shapes and, and flavors of events uh, so we have private events. So we have things like our CEO summit. We've, I think this is going to be our 12th year of doing a CEO summit. And that's um, helping our CEOs both network with each other, as they're often people who are struggling with the same issues. Uh, and then we also are at a point where we have experienced entrepreneurs, you know, people like Toby, who's the founder CEO of Shopify, has scaled a business to tens of billions of dollars of value and kind of what he learned along the way and his ability to give back to the first mark community. Uh, then we also and a series of kind of private events like that. You know, we're running our I think it's our 13th uh, marketing summit 
this coming Wednesday, where it's not only you know how to market if you're a first mark company, whether it be consumer or enterprise, but also bringing the other CMOs of some of the largest businesses in the world. So, you know, they can learn from us and we can learn from them. And we consider that a semi-private event. And then we also run four of the biggest technology meetups uh, in the world. And we have uh, about those four conferences were put on, we put on uh, 10 times a year. And they're uh, probably four or five hour conferences. And they deal with what we think are some of the biggest trends that we're seeing in the marketplace. So we have data driven, which is all, all trends around data and using data to make decisions, including machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, that's here based in New York. It's the biggest meetup of its kind in the world. And it's recently um, picked up an arm in California as well as in Europe. We have design driven, which is the intersection of tech and design. It's the biggest meetup of, of its kind in the world. Code driven, which is the biggest software developer meetup on the East Coast. And hardwired, which is um, anything that uh, in, on frontier technology that uses software as a brain. And so those are public, and we have over 50,000 members of those communities that we could use as kind of a gathering post around particular interests, especially in the New York community. So when things when things go bad, which they always do um, at, at one stage when you, as a company, is growing, uh, what makes a good venture capital partner? Because uh, it seems like the thing to say that from VCs is that we're founder friendly. What does that truly mean to you? So we rarely use the term founder friendly because uh, you know it implies just saying yes to everything in our mind. And I think a lot of people have taken that to founder friendly to just to just uh, just saying yes to everything. You know, our version of being founder friendly <clears throat> is helping our founders be as good as they can be and build the best company they could build. So that's that's a different version. And so it means disagreeing at times. It means pushing pushing people on their thought process and their logic. It means pushing folks to think deeply about how they configure their team and the people they need to add to their team. And I think that you know the way we we view that founder friendly world is you know we're going to help you to the best of our ability. We're going to work incredibly hard, hand in glove with you. To help to help drive the business to be as good as it could be, and especially our CEO leaders having you know having getting the best out of themselves. I think that you know that might be a slightly different version of the world than you know what other people see, but it's super important. And you know as we think about what's going to make them successful in the future. And you know, kind of hitting on the first part of your question, I would say most of our companies, even the most successful ones, have had a time where they thought the business wasn't going to work and it was going to go away. And you know, at that point, it's kind of being a foil where we could say, hey, it's not that this, you know, this maybe we ran an experiment that didn't work, or maybe there was an issue that was either in or out of our control, which wound up being incredibly, incredibly bad. But you know, I, I think our our ability is to be able being able to be a support at that point, saying, you know, we've seen this we've seen this a hundred times. We know this happens, and we still have a great idea. We still have a great team. We could push through this temporary setback and ultimately achieve success. 
And of course, this is obviously a long-term partnership. It's 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 one that's expected to last for you know seven to ten years. How should founders do their own due diligence on VCs? Yeah, it's actually fairly straightforward. Um, in that you know you go to the internet, you could find out the companies that we've invested in, find out the boards which I've sat on. And just call them up. Uh, I think you know, especially as you know, we, you get into often in these times competitive situations. Um, we view ourselves at first mark as being 100% referenceable. So we say, just call. You know, let us know, especially if we're engaged, interested, thinking about creating this long-term partnership. Let us know who you want to talk to. We'll introduce you to them, and we'll figure out, you know, if we're a good fit for you and you're a good fit for us, and. People, you know, often, you know, people ask about companies I invested in that, that succeeded, people that failed, um, you know, how we treated them as a firm and I treated them as an individual during the tough times. And, you know, that's kind of where you make your reputation and not only the good companies, but how you treat people and how the firm and the individual reacts during the tough times. Of course, of course. What type of cadence of communication do you like to hear from your founders it very much depends. Uh, and so it depends on it depends on the person and it depends on uh, also what's going on at the company. So I have some founders I text with or call or email with almost every day, especially when you're going through a financing transaction, a sale transaction, um, you know, a new product launch, um, a big press push. You know, you want to be in, in communication, even if it's just a quick text where someone might want input on, on a nuanced uh, issue. Um, you know, other times that are slower or founders who are, you know, not going, who might be going through a tactical path or might be, um, you know, a slower part of the company's development. You know, you might talk once a week. But I think, you know, the, the, the good thing about that is you, if you establish a great relationship early, that cadence of uh, cadence conversation and comfortability kind of comes naturally. Finding product market fit. I know there's tons of articles on this subject, but how does a founder know when they have product market fit when it comes to consumer? You know, it, it's really hard to pick out one thing. I would probably say that the the key thing that, that you you see with some of the founders is referral. And, you know, we, we tend to be very data driven and even on the consumer side, uh, most of our founders are very data driven. And what they're able to see is, wow, we're seeing engagement that we didn't plan for. Or more importantly, we're seeing referral traffic that, we, that weren't, wasn't expected in our model. And what it means is that your customers are so excited about your product and, you know, you don't, you could see it in MPS and a bunch of other stuff, but it's just very clear in the numbers that they're telling everybody about. It. And I'm sure you've had magical experiences with consumer companies. We are like, wow, that was magic. I need to tell everybody about it. And, you know, that winds up, you see, you see that in the numbers and then you see that also in MPS and you see that in, in increasingly in kind of reviews and, and your social factors that people are saying, I just tried this out. You know, I just tried out Roman Health and that was a magical experience. You know, I've been on, I was on Pinterest and I got lost for two hours because it, I was having so much fun. All those things are, are, are kind of very clear. And it's sometimes often hard to find that magic, but, but really incredible when it happens. How should those that are thinking of starting B2C businesses evaluate if their proposed solution is the right solution to the problem? You know, some things are, uh, you don't know until you try. 
And I would say most uh, startups, including maybe even especially consumer startups, aren't completely, you know, launch before they're completely baked. You know, they, they think they have, that there is a particular type of game or a particular type of commerce experience that people would like. And they try it out, and you know, it's sometimes it's not even what they expected. Folks love one part but not another. You know, folks really like a game mechanic, but they don't like um, the social factors. And you, and you know, like a lot of things in life, the the only way to do it is kind of get into it, start having it. You know, start working through it, get feedback from your customers, and just work like hell to iterate. So. I know that you've invested in several different consumer marketplaces over the years. What do you think is the next stage for online marketplaces? You know, we've seen a lot of really successful three-sided marketplaces where you're bringing multiple people together. You know, the clear one, which has been, um, you know, the, uh, some of the last phase of big companies are the DoorDashes and Postmates of the world who, you know, bring together a merchant, a consumer, and a delivery item. So it's kind of a much more complex transaction. Um, we've also and you know something similar to that would be Omaze, which is bringing together charities, unique experiences, and consumers to be able to raise more money for charities. So you know that's that's kind of on the edge of bringing three people together as part of that experience. Um, the other thing that we're seeing in marketplaces is marketplaces as pallets, and you know you're starting to see, and it's not in our portfolio, but but Roblox which is a gaming platform, which enables people to build their own games. So that marketplace, so it's a marketplace for games in which a lot of the content or product is user generated. And, you know, it's existed for a while. If you even go back down a very simplistic basis of Etsy. Um, so Etsy, you know, obviously is handmade and it's really just a place for folks to not only express themselves, but to earn income. And I think the sim, you know, you're, you're seeing a similar thing in the video game industry and you'll see more about content going forward. No, absolutely. In today's age, how do you think about, uh, online customer acquisition costs, uh, since, you know, online marketing is just becoming more and more expensive since you only have two main distributors in Google and Facebook. Um, you know that's that's the problem. And I think you know what you're, the best companies in consumer hopefully have a differentiated product. So although they're you know trying to get you know working through the same avenues and those two huge kind of behemoths on customer acquisition where you have direct competitors of people selling the same product or indirect competitors people trying to sell to the same demographic and driving up prices. So you have to be completely differentiating your value prop and hopefully more valuable to your customers and therefore um, able to do more. Uh, the other thing is that the best companies are constantly iterating on the edge. You know, so you know, right now people are finding a lot of ROI in Pinterest and being able to to drive uh, you know a higher return on investment in Pinterest investment in Pinterest. Certain companies are finding a higher ROI in Snap. You know, for a while there was the influencer marketplaces where you're able to use influencers, uh, especially in video, to drive a higher ROI if you, if you if you have the right tone and the right people. Uh, so we're you're constantly testing new things. You're testing things on the edge, and if they work, and you're thoughtful enough about your experiments, if they work, you just dive into them. So you know, if you if you feel like you're able to put a dollar into a marketing channel and get two dollars out. You know, you, you you test and you put as much in as possible, so you're not you're not playing the same game as everybody else. 
What are some consumer trends and opportunities that you're really excited about? I'd probably say the three three sided marketplaces are is, are going to be huge, and you're you're seeing more companies that are providing more kind of elements as a service. So whether that's delivery or cars, um, you know, I'm a big fan. Although I'm not an investor in Turo, which has unique uh, unique things, um, and I think those marketplaces which provide something completely unique are is is going to be different than the normal kind of consumer shopping experience at Amazon. Um, the other thing is I think we're still in the early innings of video games. So I think everything around gaming, whether it be format or structure or development style, um, is all going to change tremendously. I'll probably say just because uh, I like to do things in threes, a third mega trend we'd say is the consumers taking more control over healthcare. So having a direct-to-consumer healthcare experience, and whether that be controlling the cost of their own healthcare, um, getting a higher quality of experience through a greater customization, or really understanding more about their body and understanding more about what works for them in, in somewhat personalized healthcare experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I can see also marketplaces uh, expanding into more regulated industries such as healthcare. Uh, so what is... What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? Probably think that there, if there was more curation in, in, on the social side of venture capital, I think that um, oftentimes, um, you know, the, the lack of verification founders um, read something on Twitter and take that as gospel. Um, whereas I think that there might be more nuance and can be expressed in 140 characters, or maybe the person providing the advice. Um, is providing bad advice. So, you know, oftentimes when I talk to founders, especially ones kind of outside of our portfolio that I'm just helping um, and just helping along as in their, in their entrepreneurial journey, um, they've, they've globbed on to an idea, which is not a very good idea and it's not a sustainable idea, but they, they, they've read it on Twitter or they've heard it from someone who heard it from someone. Um, and therefore they have a hard time letting that go. What's your advice for founders that, uh, that maybe live in secondary or tertiary markets? You know, we do a lot of things in, in secondary and tertiary markets. We're not afraid of, of different markets. Um, you know, we've done things in Columbus and Philadelphia and, and Baltimore. Uh, and, you know, I was Shopify's in Ottawa and we've done things in Montreal and Toronto. And so, you know, we, we think that there's entrepreneurship everywhere. And we think the democratization of tools will make it easier for people to build companies in those places. And they're easier to either build distributed teams or have people who want to live in kind of non-traditional non venture cities. So we think those markets are great and we're going to continue to invest heavily in them. I, I think the other thing that, that you have to think about when you're in those cities is you're, you're, going to com you're, you're still competing for venture dollars. You're still competing for human capital with everybody you know, in San Francisco, in New York, in LA, in London, you know, can you have, can you tell a differentiated story? Because if you have great people and you're able to tell a differentiated story, I think people, the capital will find you. And you might need to be a little bit more prepared to do that than if you're able to, you know, walk, walk south of market in San Francisco and see a hundred different venture capitalists. But it's, uh, the world's more open to those cities than ever before. 
that I guess that, that that leads me into my next question. I, I heard one venture capitalist say that he said, it doesn't matter as a venture capitalist where you actually live, uh, considering all of the amazing communication that's out there, you're still able to invest all over the world. How do you how do you think about about actual like hubs and 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 startup ecosystems with with the ability to also communicate uh, worldwide? I, I think that it's important to be able to be present. For your uh, for your companies, and whether that's being available to have a coffee if a founder's struggling through a difficult time, whether you're available to interview somebody in a key position, so being physically present matters a lot. Um, and you know, and it's not not only being physically present at board meetings, but being physically present when you're needed, which often isn't on a on a, on a set cadence. So I think uh, it's harder than you guess to to you know to live or work somewhere else. Um, at the same time, I, I do think the tools are getting better. Um, I do think teams are becoming more distributed, and I do think you know if you um, if you're able to use those tools, you could pro- well, probably live any anywhere if you're willing to spend a fair amount of time on an airplane. Yeah, and I would imagine it's also harder to source, right? If you're far away from from an ecosystem that you're targeting. It's push and pull. I would say it is a bit harder to source because again, you know, if you're south of market in San Francisco or Union Square in New York, you have tons of entrepreneurs who are around you. I would say the thing that my friends who don't live in a, in a major city who are investors have said it is positive for them is you're also out of the noise. So, you know, oftentimes you, you don't have time to think nor would you have time to uh, have, have time to really process what you're focused on. And I think a lot of the best investments come from independent thought and outreach. And a lot of my invest, best investments have not, you know, have not walked in the door, but we've reached out to them because you're, you're interested in a particular segment or a particular trend. And maybe if you're out of market, you're not, you know, you're, you're out of the noise. It gives you more thoughtful time to think about what the companies you want to invest in instead of, you know, what's coming through the door tomorrow. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Deep thought is is very, very important when it comes to obviously assessing markets and uh, and opportunities. What's one book that has impacted you personally and one that has in, impacted you professionally? Impacted me personally is probably why why we sleep. So it's just, you know, a, a new it's a new book about, you know, how how and why you how and why we sleep and you unlock the power of sleep and dreams. So the you know, how you know, often I probably in my in my 20s and even my 30s, I thought about, you know, sleep is stealing time from doing other things I want to do professionally or personally, instead of being able to embrace that as a rejuvenation and think and focusing more on quality than quantity. And then on the professional side, I still think I'm still a huge fan of Moneyball. And, you know, being able to think about the world differently and being able to say, given given constraints you may have and what the constraints that Billy Bean might have had in, in Oakland as opposed to a major market and how he thought about, you know, how he spent his time and money and effort and to create new ways to look at the world, even though they might be completely orthogonal to conventional wisdom. And I just think that's a great lesson in, you know, in business and in life. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I thought Moneyball was, was amazing. So what is your most recent consumer investment and why did you invest and why are you excited about it? 
I would say my most recent consumer investment that's announced. So I don't want to, I don't want to steal anyone's thunder or my own thunder. But I would say Perch Homes, which is a, it's a it's a marketplace for home ownership, and what they actually able to do maybe differently than the iBuyer market like Open Door or traditional home brokers is they actually give you the ability to both buy and sell. So most people. You know, historically, since the beginning of time, were treated as those were two separate transactions. You know, there's a life life change whether you're, you know, you're getting married, you're having a kid, you're maybe retiring, and then therefore you have to sell your house and buy your house. You might have two different brokers. They might not have a bundle transaction. You might have used brokers traditionally for discovery and for pictures of the house. Now the whole discovery process, obviously, through the uh, perches and Zillows of the world, make it easier to find what houses are for sale, how much they cost, what do they look like, and your broker should be able to be able to provide you that next level of service of managing the transaction in a digital way, and both buying and selling your house. So usually there's an aspirational need or a want to buy a new house, and then selling your old house is kind of part of the transaction. And it's something that also needs to be managed actively. And Perch is able to manage both those in a completely digital process at a, at a substantially cheaper price. So it's a great serial entrepreneur here in New York, Court Cunningham. And he's built a great team and we're super excited about it. That sounds really cool. What's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? Uh, there's a lot. I've been doing this for a long time, so I've made a lot of mistakes. You know, there was a, you know, a long, long time ago, I was talking to a guy at a board meeting and he was telling me about uh, a new, new search engine that uh, was just a better search engine than, you know, the Lycos, the dog piles, the Alta Vistas of the world, you know, in around 2000. Um, and then, and I asked about the team and they said, well, it's, you know, two kids who just dropped out of school. Um, I asked about the revenue and they said, you know, there's basically no revenue. And I asked about the price and they said the price was super high. And I thought, you know, does the world really need another search engine brought to you by, you know, two, two entrepreneurs with no, no experience that has no revenue at a high price. Um, and I think this was probably 2000, 2001, and it was a series B of Google. So, um, I think that one, uh, that one yeah, I will remember probably for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, still seeing your track record is still quite unbelievable. So what's what's one piece of advice that you have for founders that are either looking or or currently are building consumer companies? You know, I, I think you have to you have to think about doing things that are different. I you know, maybe one of the think one of the traps that people get caught into is not being innovative enough. Um, and, you know, you see people who are like, you know, who are providing something similar to either another startup or even a large incumbent that haven't innovated. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something that Amazon does, but it'll be subscription as opposed to non-subscription. And therefore, it's not different enough that either the incumbents or other startups can't, um, can't compete with you. And also, you know, it's also not different enough that, you know, you're, you're having multiple levels of innovation that provides you a big enough lead that can build a big enough company. So, you know, thinking about why are you materially different and why is that a sustainable differentiation is the key thing. You know, it's, it's a really hard thing to do because you don't want to be too far out there and have people think you're crazy. 
But on the other hand, you really like to look for people who you think are crazy or think are doing the world, think are doing something completely different. Now, in terms of being different enough and, you know, developing your moat or your, you know, competitive advantage, what do you believe are some maybe elements or, or things that people might think are a competitive advantage, but really you don't think they actually are? I would probably say large amounts, uh, I mean, and obviously this is, this is telling of the times and, the, and where we are today. I would say large amounts of bad revenue. So if, you know, if folks can grow, but, you know, they're not making any money on their customers, um, it's, it's a false signal and it's a vanity metric as opposed to, you know, do you have real business model revenue? Is that real business model revenue, um, you know, having economics that everybody's winning? And, you know, you could even look at some of the ride sharing companies that they're able to drive a, a lot of revenue, but everybody's not really all that happy in the transaction. The regulators aren't happy. The drivers don't feel like they're getting paid enough. Uh, the platforms themselves are, are, don't have a sustainable business model at this level of revenue in those unit economics. And, and even the customers are saying, hey, if you raise prices anymore, I'll look at alternatives or just take the subway. So, you know, you could grow very fast if your economics don't work or the value proposition doesn't work. Um, but you have to be creating enough value in your business that all all players in that ecosystem are are both uh, are able to capture enough value to make it worthwhile to them, or your business is going to change over time. It might not be as big as you thought, or it might be more different than you might have guessed. Right. No, I think you. you You've raised an excellent point. When do you think a founder should focus on the sustainability and profitability of the business model versus purely growth? Well, I think you have to you have to get in business and oftentimes you have to do things that, that are not business model or not sustainable just to get in business and start learning, right? I mean, it was the you know, Obama O's at Airbnb where you know you're kind of selling cereal to pay for places to be able to just start getting in business of, of renting out rooms at the um, at the Democratic National Convention. Um, so that's, you know, hey, you're doing something that's not sustainable, but you have to be learning enough to be able to say, I'm doing this, or you have to be aware enough that, you know, I'm doing this non-sustainable thing to get to the sustainable thing. I'm selling cereal today because I believe if I have a marketplace for for houses and places to stay on Airbnb, that's my sustainable business model. This is just a way to jumpstart everything. And so that's that's kind of the key thing that they <clears throat> that people have to think through. And it's okay to do non-sustainable things, but it's a means to an end and not an end in itself. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, Rick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. It was wonderful having me on and I'm happy to do it again sometime. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Rick on the podcast. And Rick, thanks so much again for taking the time. I really hope you enjoy that as much as I did. If you want to keep up to date with Rick, you can follow him on Twitter at Rick Heitzman. It will also be in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, which since you're still listening, I hope you have, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. For all episodes, check out theconsumervc.com. And if you want to follow along behind the scenes, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. All episodes moving forward will be released on Mondays and Thursdays each week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and until next time.